Welcome everyone. Today is Friday, Fire Friday. And I thought instead of talking about too much of the news and just kind of skirt by it, we learn what genetic algorithms are and what chimera really means. See, I see a lot of people, someone actually kind of rattled my feathers by being so annoying, you know, kind of like a mosquito. And I wanted to show people that you are unable to make any changes to your genetic code through medications or through cleanses or anything. And so I want people to understand just how deep this hole really is, starting from over a decade ago, demonstrating the technology that they showcased on a global platform in 2021 with the, of course, pandemic. So uh, this video obviously is not in English, but he pretty much puts out on his whiteboard the basic components to compose a genetic algorithm. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, science stuff. So we have had these conversations before and how I feel in regards to sciences and genetic manipulation, having studied it. Now, while many say, oh, you can't play God, you have to understand that the tools and the knowledge in order to be able to create these things, you know, wouldn't have been done without the tools and the knowledge and the, the blessing of having a mind from him himself. So it's more of an ethical perspective, I guess, and how much information someone has to actually have an opinion. Now, chimera is a, a term that originates from Greek mythology. It conjures images of uh, mythical creatures, right? With blended features, different animals, the lion-headed, serpent-tailed monster, right? In essence, if people read and had correct translations, they would understand that it was a monster that was created with the most fearsome and dangerous qualities from tons of different species. And I, I've inch to this before, you know, because I'm going to go back to the Roseanne Barr interview with Blair White when she talked about not believing in dinosaurs. Actually, you know what? I'm going to find it and see if I can. Give me a second. And I actually thought of making it a clip. Okay. Let's see. Is this it? Okay. This is her talking about God. I don't know if it is one where she talks about dinosaurs too. Let's see. Let's see. Look up through your eye sockets as far as you can. Look all the way up to where your head hurts or your eye strain. Your eyes way up there. Breathe in. Contain it. Up there. It's cool up there. I don't think I'm trans anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wrong one. Hold on. I'm trying to find. I'm trying to find the clip where she said she doesn't believe in dinosaurs. Gosh darn it! I'm not gonna find it. I should have had it because you know I don't read scripts for my show. I don't read at all. I pretty much come here and begin. But there was one portion where she said she doesn't believe in dinosaurs as in believe because she wasn't there, right? 
And so I've said this before, uh, you know, the scientific community and the general consensus is, wow, the Greeks were genius. The Greek empire was incredible. Ancient Greece, they had toilets, you know, they had precision surgery. They knew what cancer is. They gave us math, they gave us this, but they also gave us mermaids and centaurs and chimeras. And so, you know, you have to say, wait, so they were crazy. They were just making up mythical creatures, half man, half goat, half horse, half human, you know, people that, um, you know, swim in the water with fishtails. Which one is it? Sirens. And it goes back to something that I've said many times is that sometimes when we read things from the past, we have to take into account how it was. So, for example, if people read tragedies like Akavi, right, or Antigone, right, you'll see that in the chorus part, they she says, oh, God, from that's a machine in the sky, come down. But, you know, no one even looks at that stuff. They're like, what? And they didn't know what it was. They could have been seeing airplanes. They just knew it was something mechanical and silver that was coming down from the sky. This is ancient Greece, okay? So we shouldn't be taking history on face value because we weren't there. I mean, they're changing yesterday's history. You think they haven't changed history to make it sound mythical or crazy? I mean, the Septuagint even talks about abortion in there and medical procedures to remove babies. So it, it, discernment is so important when when you're trying to reflect and what you can accept and again we have to remember those were different times with different sets of knowledge who knows some civilizations may have believed that they were the center of the universe others believe that they're just a crater on a larger you know structure others think that the world is flat i mean there was a saudi you know guy who was saying that till his death you know there and it's recent so if they're changing history from yesterday to today, do you not think this has repeated itself? So think of what the ancient Greeks meant by chimera and taking all the, um, you know, big qualities from various beasts to create the ultimate warrior, right? And, and that's what's key here, that we're missing the mark. We're not paying attention. Okay, not paying attention uh, to what is being said to us and how we are just reliving things we understand that in the future, guys, how many, how, how many of you right now think that in a hundred years, people will know what happened today if we don't document it and insist on documenting it? That's the thing. We're not paying attention to what we should be doing and seeing that this is not something new. Here's a little clip from a movie. One of my favorite movies, actually. The, uh, I don't watch movies again and again and again and again. Like some people can saying, oh, that's my favorite movie, I'm gonna watch it again. I can't do it, except for this one. Because it was so, it, the storyline was so well done. Uh, I mean, everyone's cup of tea, but for me, that, that's what did it. Here we go. Spread ourselves into castes, some to be our eyes and ears, some to be our muscles and sinews. Oh, you mean you're hunters? Yes. Bread to be predators, but bread also to 
be controlled, you see. My cast, concentrated on expanding our cerebral abilities. You control their thoughts? Nos trust theirs. Eloy. So it's not enough that you, that you hunt them down like animals? That's their role here. To be your food? Yes. And for those who are suitable to be breeding vessels for our other colonies. You see, I'm just one of many. I don't understand how you can sit there and speak so coldly about this. Have you not considered the human cost of, of what it is you're doing? We all pay a price. Alexander. safe. I control them. Without that control, they will exhaust the food supply in a matter of months. Food supply? They're human beings. Who are you to question 800,000 years? Who's to say we haven't seen this movie again before, right? So let's start. Let's see what we can start. I mean, you know, I was thinking we could go into like Khan Academy and go into that, but we'll just go to a few clips so you can see what they've been telling you. Here's a clip from 10 years ago. Did I mention 10 years ago? You know, 10 years ago in technology is like a century, right? You buy a computer today that's the newest one on the market and it does not exist. Now, Keep in mind what you're going to see is bioinformatics. As I told you as a child, I was pulled into computational linguistics. Then we got into computational genetics or genomics. And, you know, that's uh, known as the field of bioinformatics. And I just want to say, you know, chimera that I, that I said, you know, how the Greeks had this monster. That's the chimera, right? And this is exactly what we have now, the chimera uh, afoot. But just understand that the concept of hybrid beings has been resonating throughout the ages, representing a fusion of diverse elements in like a realm of science and genetics. So the term chimera takes a, a different but equally intriguing meaning to what, you know, mythology and stories and, and, and tales tell us. The concept of chimerism has obviously, like we said, its roots in Greek mythology. Um, but in the field of genetics, a chimera refers to an organism or a line of code or a line of genetic code that contains cells from two or more distinct genetic lineages. So technically, those of you that have, you know, uh, different genetics uh, inserted within your um, genetic code, so like you have, you know, uh, from like African and European and Oriental, et cetera, right? So this naturally occurs, right, from copulation and migration and, uh, you know, in the case like of fraternal twins, right, um, or if it's done artificially, 
right? This is how chimeras happen. And so this is how nature, I would guess, or on its own, uh, there's a cr creation of this genetically modified organism. And, you know, these are through mutations. And like we said um, earlier, you know, meshing of different genetic lineages. Now, chimeric proteins, and this is, and, and these came, you know, from like significant advancements in biotech, just so you understand. And that was over 40 years ago. What the people know is not what your governments or uh, the big consumer um, companies have. Technology, the technology we have, some of you may not be able to even conceive. So think chimeric proteins are engineered proteins that combine elements from different sources designed for specific purposes, right? Almost like how you buy genetically modified tomatoes. They have their genetic code injected in them to be resistant to a certain uh, species, a virus or a bacterium. Now, they're designed for specific purposes, and these can be used for various medical applications, right? Including targeted drug delivery or enhancing the efficiency of therapeutic molecules. In that context, right, proteins hold super promise to, to help that you recreate a protein rather than give someone a medication, you provide them directly the protein that they are unable to make or bring it into, I would say, calm the results of actual genetic changes. So now let's talk about chimeric viruses. That's called gain-of-function research. These are double-edged swords. While they have been used to develop vaccines and gene therapies, they also pose extreme risks because of the unknown and that they're not fully controlled. So the potential for, and I use an air quote, unintended consequences, such as the creation of unpredictable pathogens, right? Remember, when I was at Craig Ventner's lab, I, he was under that, you know, the ExxonMobil gave him all that money um, to genetically modify a very simple uh, unit of life to not be virulent in the sense of giving UTIs, but to be spitting out ethanol. And so, you know, when you see this, right, that's a genetically modified thing. This was done by introducing chimeric type viruses. Well, actually, no, he used the knockout method, but in order to inject the blue color, a chimeric virus was used in order to rewrite. So it was an, a string of mRNA that went in to hijack the machinery and to be able to insert the code to make the bacterium glow blue. And again, I say that a chimeric virus is a string of RNA that is genetically modified to enter into an organism and hijack the mechanisms in order to be inserted. The science was done, the science has been done and completed over a decade ago, right? And so it's, it's a very big deal because that is exactly what was provided to all of mankind in hopes of helping them with COVID-19, which turns out it's not correct. So let's take a look what the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases has to tell us. This is from 10 years ago. Hi, my name is Daryl, and I'm going to teach you how to make a mutation and accommodate it using UCSF Chimera. 
What you see here is the Barnace bar star complex, bacterial ribonuclease and its polypeptide inhibitor, bar star. According to this study from 2004 in the Biophysics Journal, this mutation, glutamic acid 73 to tryptophan in Barnace, does not really impact the delta G of binding. The delta G of binding for the wild type you can see is minus 19 kcals per mole. And this particular mutation is only minus 17.4, which means that even though this mutation from glutamic acid to tryptophan is quite different and uh, non-conservative, it does not affect binding very much, even though this residue is in the interface between the two proteins. Compare this delta G to other delta Gs, which are very different than the minus 19 of the native. So we want to understand why it is that this mutation does not impact uh, significantly the binding event. So first we have to find out where glutamic acid 73 is in Barnase. Barnase is on the left, it's chain A. Bar stars on the right, it's chain D. We'll display the sequence from the favorites menu. Favorites, sequence. I know that in the window that appears, I can see that chain A is the one I want. Here's the sequence. I find glutamic acid 73 and highlight it here, just like you do with a word processing program. Click and drag to highlight it you can see that it turns green, dark green, and it turns green in the 3D view as well. Now I will show the atoms that are selected. Actions, atoms, show. There's the glutamic acid. Now what I want to do is show the residues surrounding the glutamic acid. So I will select a zone around that glutamic acid. The zone will be everything within five angstroms. It will select all angstroms, all atoms within five angstroms of the glutamic acid. And if those angstroms belong to a residue, it will select the entire residue. Click OK. Now I can see more things are selected. I'll show them. Actions, atoms, show. Now I can see the environment around the glutamic acid. There is no tool called mutations in UCSF Chimera. We'll zoom in. UCSF Chimera. So this is from 10 years ago where they had already developed a way to digitally, remember what did Moderna say? They did it on their computer, right? This is from over 10 years ago. So the university, of California, San Francisco, is the one that's responsible for this. Um, they're the leaders of it. It's actually called, the software is actually named after them. I would highly suggest from for anyone who has watched The Sound of Freedom and is interested in chimeric uh, things to look into a guy named Robbie Watson. That's um, at the University of California, San Francisco. You'll be surprised what you find. So um, going on that, he's explaining here how you can change the genetic structure of the protein that you're looking at or 
the target that you want for it to do whatever so it can bind to your DNA. That's what proteins do or receptors on specific cells to what kick off processes into that nucleus of that cell to generate a protein. So that's the job of a protein to kind of like float around, dock itself somewhere. And I want you guys to think of a, a table with an antenna. So as this protein sits on the right antenna, underneath the table, that pole knocks off the first domino. So imagine like dominoes falling until they get to the nucleus. And in the nucleus, it's like, yo, make protein like X, Y, Z. And it's like, yo, here we go. So it has to be done, you know, in sequence. So, uh, that's how important proteins are. They tell your cell what information to provide to the nucleus, the brain of the cell, which holds all your DNA, to then kick off the creation of a protein so that way it can be used in whatever manner is necessary or whatever manner is depicted on the algorithm or the communication that your cell had with the nucleus from the docking of the protein. I hope that made sense. So let me show you um, another nice, you know, explanation, I guess. Um, let me see, where is it? This is from eight years ago. Eight years ago, and the software is called UCSF chimera structure chimera so it's a let me show you it's a protein bank and they're showing you how they're doing it this is how i was able to grab hold of the first things that they put out on covid because people panicked and then they took it down of course and that's how i could see the graphene seams and the adenine tails because you use the right software here we go mm. Hello and welcome to the UCSF Chimera Structure Analysis Tutorial. In this tutorial, you will learn some of the commonly used options in the Tools menu, such as the general controls of the software, viewing controls, depictions of the molecules, and specific structure analysis options. These tools will help you explore and understand interactions stabilizing a residue or a ligand in the structure. It will also help you measure distances between atoms. The example file in this tutorial is a myoglobin structure with the PDB identifier 1MBO. Commonly used tools for structure analysis are available under the tools menu. Under general controls, you can activate a command line and type in commands to perform various manipulations or measurements or analysis. If that is not your cup of tea, you can hide it. Under viewing controls, you can select the view that is visible in the graphics window. For example, the side view allows you to slab through the structure and see only a thin slice of the molecule. You can also look at the lighting and change it. You can play with it to make it brighter or darker or reset it. The depiction allows you to color 
the molecule in specific ways. For example, the secondary structure coloring will allow you to color the alpha helices and beta sheets with specific colors. Since the myoglobin structure is almost entirely alpha helical, this whole structure is now colored blue, which was the color chosen for alpha helices. We can also color the molecule according to the rainbow color scheme terms of heme colored with the CPK coloring. To measure the distance between the iron in the heme group and the coordinating histidine, you need to select the two atoms between which the distance is to be measured. Do this by pressing shift control and a left mouse click on these two atoms. As you can see, Once the atoms are selected. Are very this is highly Open technical on how they can manipulate panel, things as you can see their the accuracy the is impeccable because as i've always said dna is nothing but molecular software and so uh, obviously it doesn't take a rocket scientist obviously it takes a geneticist or someone very well versed in biology to understand that you know if you take that approach then it, it is something that you can use for good and bad, right? But let's break down the concept of chimeric proteins before I show you the bioinformatics, you know, 3D protein structure so you can see what they're doing. Proteins are essential molecules, right, that we have in our body to perform various important functions. They're like tiny little workers, right? And so every job they have is to help your body work optimally. And your DNA, which is like a blueprint, contains all the instructions in its, in its code to make these proteins. Now, sometimes due to various factors, right, these protein-making instructions get mixed up or combined in a unique way. Kind of like people that eat humans, you know, they get misfolded proteins, right? That's just one example. So the mixing creates what we call chimeric proteins. Think of it like combining pieces from different puzzles to create a unique picture, right? Um, chimeric proteins, they're formed when parts of the DNA instructs one protein to get merged with the instructions of another protein. This happens because of genetic mutations or errors in DNA copying, natural processes or genetic targeted genetic manipulation. So the interesting thing uh, that these chimeric proteins might have are functions that are different from the original proteins. So they act like hybrids. They do like a task of a blend of tasks, uh, like the proteins they came from or that they're mimicking. And this can have either a positive or a negative effect on you. Now, in some cases, chimeric proteins might help your body adapt to changes like, oh, the atmosphere now has nitrogen, so you should be able to metabolize more nitrogen, so you should start metabolizing more nitrogen, so they might help you. Or maybe breathe underwater. This is, I'm just giving you extremes, right? But they help you adapt to changes and challenges. However, this also leads to health issues. So if you create a chimeric protein to hijack, you know, the human body to then spew out the new protein that then codes the DNA or gives instructions, hijacks instructions from the DNA on replication, then, you know, that could have, you know, health issues that disrupt the normal functions of 
other proteins in your body. So, you know, the scientific community for over four years has been studying proteins and RNA strands um, that are chimeric to understand how they work, gain of function research. We've been pouring a lot of money into that, um, especially into relation of diseases or the ability to adapt to changing environments and or other things. So sometimes certain chimeric proteins, they're associated with specific health conditions too. So they're kind of like mix and match. But you have to understand um, something that people seem to forget that SARS-CoV-2, COVID, the virus that's responsible for COVID-19, is categorized as a chimeric virus because it has genetic elements that appear to have originated from multiple different sources. So that's fact. It's not something that people want to talk about because it makes people feel, you know, very concerned for their loved ones and, and others. So here's a, a video from a channel that I like, the Be Smart channel. He explains things. Now, I don't always uh, um, agree with his, you know, kind of soft approach to things, uh, but this is a very good example of how you could be a chimera. See, a baby girl was born in a Seattle hospital. She was healthy, though one of her eyes was brown and the other was hazel. And her organs were a bit unusual as well. On one side of her body, she had an ovary. On the other, what looked like a testicle. Strangest of all, when doctors tested her blood, they found a mix of two blood types. The genetic tests revealed that the cells in the girl's body came from two distinct individuals, a male and a female. This girl was what we call a chimera. So how did this happen? Her mother had been pregnant with fraternal twins, a boy and a girl, who had fused into one embryo, resulting in a single healthy child. But doctors used to think that chimeras were extremely rare, but as genetic testing has become more widespread and advanced, it turns out there's more chimeras out there than we thought. In fact, you might even be one. If the idea that humans could be weird mashups of two or more different individuals sounds like something out of a monster myth, that's because it is. Luckily, I know a real life monsterologist. So I called my friend, Dr. Emily Zarka from the YouTube channel Monstrum so she could tell us more. The word chimera comes from the name of a great mythological beast in ancient Greek mythology, the chimera. Said to have the body and head of a lion, the tail of a snake, and the head of a goat placed randomly in the middle of its back, the monster first appears in the Iliad. The Chimera is killed, but because of her impossible hybridity, we've carried her name with us through the centuries. Thank you, Dr. Z. I just want to point out that Emily really does study monsters for a living, which is so cool, and you should definitely watch Monstrum because it's awesome. Now, in biology, a chimera is not as scary as in the myth. It simply refers to an individual who is an amalgamation of two or more genetically distinct individuals of the same species. No goat heads grown out of their back or anything. But for humans, this means a person containing cells from two or more different people. The little girl in our example is called a tetragametic chimera because four gametes, or reproductive cells, came together to create her. Two of her father's sperm fertilized two of her mother's eggs, resulting in two embryos that merged into one. 
Now, the fact that the two original embryos were of opposite sexes made this case of chimerism easy to see on the genetic level. But sometimes there's nothing obvious indicating a person might be a chimera. This story is super messed up. In 2003, a woman named Lydia Fairchild nearly lost her four children because DNA tests said she wasn't their mother. Now, a person inherits half of his or her DNA from each parent, so a mother and her child should be at least a 50% match. But when authorities tested DNA from her skin, hair, and saliva, it wasn't a 50% match with her kids. She shared much less than a parent should. So authorities accused Lydia of kidnapping kids that weren't hers. But then researchers looked at cells from Lydia's cervix and that DNA matched her children. And because of these results, the court allowed Lydia to keep her kids. Lydia was a chimera too. But in her case, two female embryos had fused in the womb. She was her own fraternal twin sister. Now, genetically, some parts of her body made her the kid's aunt while others made them her mother. Now these sound like one in a million cases, but recent research shows that chimerism is far more common than we once thought. In 2012, a group of researchers examined the brains of 59 women who had died, mostly in their 70s. They were looking for a gene that was found only on the Y chromosome, a chromosome that a biological woman's cells shouldn't even have. But they ended up finding the gene in almost two thirds of the women's brains. These women were chimeras. They had cells with male DNA. And that male DNA most likely came from sons the women had given birth to decades earlier. Scientists learned that during pregnancy, some cells from the fetus enter the mother's bloodstream and migrate to various organs. And they may stay there for decades, mixing with the woman's own cells. This can even occur during pregnancies that end in miscarriage or abortion. In other words, there's a good chance that your mom is a chimera which finally explains the goat head. And if you're a mom yourself, you probably are too. A micro chimera to be exact, since you likely only have a small number of your children's cells still living inside of you. Now, carrying around your kids' cells for years on end might make you more prone to autoimmune diseases where your immune system gets confused about which cells belong to you and start attacking your own tissues. On the other hand, if some of your organs malfunction, your child's healthy cells may actually step in and save the day. When one woman's liver was damaged by hepatitis C, her child's cells grew a whole new chunk of liver for her. When's the last time you got your mom something that nice? Now, chimeras share their bodies with other people, but there's another way that you might share your body with different versions of yourself. In a mosaic, a single cell in one body mutates and then keeps dividing, spawning a whole separate lineage of cells in that body, genetically distinct from the rest. And mosaicism can be really obvious. You ever see a tree with a branch or two that look like they don't belong? Well, in medieval Europe, people used to call these strange growths hexenbesen, witches' brooms. Witch's broom is an odd tree growth where short branches grow in closely packed bunches from a central source. They can be a symptom of plant disease or a result of genetic mutation, a mosaic in fact. While some of them do look like brooms, many of them actually resemble nests. But keep in mind, anything odd, especially anything even vaguely resembling a human object, was at one time seen as unnatural even supernatural. Pretty much anything weird in nature was seen as monstrous. Since witches have been associated with riding brooms since at least the 14th century, people saw these strange tree growths and gave them a name that tied the two things together. Some people even believed the mutated branches could be used by witches for shelter. 
The reality is much more mundane. A few cells mutated in one part of the tree and just gave rise to a branch that looks different from the rest of the tree. In the case of the witch's broom, the mutations are harmless, but sometimes the mutated cells can cause more serious problems. That's what happened in the most famous case of mosaicism, a 19th century Englishman known as the Elephant Man. Born Joseph Merrick as a baby, strange outgrowths appeared on his head, arm, and other parts of his body, crippling him to the point that soon the only work available to him was serving as a circus attraction. Eventually, at age 27, Merrick's mysterious condition killed him. The doctors now believe that Merrick had Proteus syndrome, a condition named after a Greek sea god who could change his shape. But the most dangerous case of mosaicism is one that's all too common, cancer. In cancer, a few cells mutate and become different from the body's normal cells, eventually dividing uncontrollably and growing into tumors. In most cancers, it's the body's own cells that mutate and become cancerous. But certain rare types of cancer can actually come from another individual's mutant cells. That's right, contagious chimeras. That's what happens with canine transmissible venereal tumor. A dog with this cancer develops tumors around their genitals. When this dog mates with a healthy dog, because dogs just aren't that picky, some tumor cells jump over to the healthy animal and soon they're growing tumors on that new dog. These tumors grow in the bodies that carry them, but they didn't come from those dogs' bodies. The tumors are genetically distinct from the host. They're actually a piece of another dog that's been passed from dog to dog to dog back through time. Scientists trace them to an ancient canine who lived about 11,000 years ago, around the end of the last ice age. Yes, a piece of one dog has been alive for 11,000 years, making this tumor the oldest dog ever. Another chimeric cancer threatening Australia's Tasmania Sounds like the canine version of HeLa cells. And this goes back to what I've been saying that, you know, there's been, there have been studies and people don't talk about this on women, women in prostitution, um, you know, that after the age of 35, they start to take more manly um, facial structures. And this is why they don't age that well, because the more genetic partners you have and genetic meaning you know, you had sex with someone. And as a female, if, you know, you didn't get pregnant or maybe you had a miscarriage or, you know, they did whatever, you took their DNA. And in exchange, and they don't talk about this, males also receive as well. And this is why, you know, they put it down to that. And, and, and there's research that shows it, that the more sexual partners a woman has, the more she looks very manly in her, um, in her later stages. This is why, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that are like, oh, that was the hot girl in high school. And, you know, everyone was all over that and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you see her when she's 35 compared to someone else that wasn't the hot girl. And you're like, damn, she didn't age well, you know, and that happens with sleeping around, <laughs> right? Um, when you have a consistent, when you're uh, there was a study showing they were checking the genetic profiles of women that were prostitutes and, you know, went with a lot of men unprotected. And then women that were, you know, that had fewer than, you know, 10 partners, some just one partner, uh, their genetic pool, they noticed that when they were having constant sex with their partner, long-term partners, the monogamous ones, they saw that their body at that point had parked it 
meaning that it did not incorporate it because it was used to it, understanding that it's always going to be there. So if you have too many of them, you absorb it. And if you have few of them, you park it. So it, there's like research on this. People don't like to talk about it because then, you know, it's, it's like slut sh genetic slut shaming. Right. Um, but you know, you saw it with the dog, just pointing it out rather than just saying it, uh, showing you the science. Tasmanian devils, which are now an endangered species. They pass these facial tumors through biting each other. Now, luckily, chimeric cancers are rare, but mosaic cancers, sadly, those are anything but rare. But really, even healthy bodies are mosaics, even yours. Each of our bodies is a product of a huge number of cell divisions. Minor changes to our DNA creep in, leading to whole lineages of cells that are a little different from the rest, often in ways that we can't see. Almost all of us harbor multiple mutations, small changes in our bodies that we weren't born with. If you sequence the DNA from cells in your heart and your nose and your left toe, I bet none of them would be an exact match. We like to think of our DNA as a unique marker of our identity that is set in stone for life. For much of human history, people with genetic abnormalities were treated like monsters. But modern science has taught us that, in fact, we're not all that different from the elephant man. We're all mosaics. And the longer we live, the more versions of ourselves we become. Stay curious. Hey, smart people. Everyone should always stay, stay curious. Now, you know, like I said, it's genetic slut shaming, but just so you understand, this is where it stems from. Couples start to look like each other. Uh, you know, men become a little bit more, um, more, uh, I would say balanced during their menopause stage, which starts, I think at 35 because they're with the same partner. I mean, all religions push what, you know, don't have many partners. <laughs> period. I guess it's except for the Muslim religion that says have a lot of wives and make a lot of babies. And that's to continue genetic lineage, right? But other than that, you know, that's, that's, that's how it goes. And, and, uh, you know, nobody wants to talk about it. But this is why they um, made the whole, how can I say it, how they started to break up the family and then encourage, you know, the summer of love, right? It was all done in a very methodical way. Let's take a quick break. I've got a nice song for you guys. Great mashup.
that is the theme of now. We're going to go down a rabbit hole, but one with um, evidence, of course, right? We're not going to just, you know, I hope many of you have jotted that name down, Robbie Watson, R-O-B-B-I-E. You should, uh, yeah, take a look. Now, let's let's go back to the Amoeba Sisters. I know this is like for kids, but a lot of people that are listening to my show are not biologists, they're not scientists. So I think it's important that um, we understand the difference between alleles and genes and how they're the same, but not the same. I, I've done this before, and this is important for what's to come. Because, you know, sounding the alarm about Obamacare and um, uh, clinical bioinformatics, you have to understand the, the end goal. And I think the movie clip that I played, which I will replay after this clip, hopefully will explain to you uh, many things. I know a lot of people have been sounding the alarm on genetically modified foods, right? We all have to start thinking as alternatives. I know a lot of people are like, well, I have chickens or I'm opening up my own greenhouse. Regardless, most of the chickens in the greenhouse that you have, you know, are usually genetically modified. And that's because they were cheaper than anything. And I've been talking about your DNA and letting people when you're over 65 in your house, right? When they're like, oh, we're just going to send a nurse to check your bone density or just get your vitals. You know, it's free from your insurance. You know how Medicare uh, pushes that for you. Um, this is all data collection, and the data collection is constantly happening. And, and, and if you want to know what the end game is, you just have to look at, you know, how you would take the best qualities from various genetic pools and then create the ultimate mash of what mankind should look like. And then, you know, prop them up on a pedestal, of course. I hope people were, who are on Rumble are did watch the the video of that fantastic mashup so let's continue with the amoeba sisters i don't remember which grade it was where i learned something about my taste buds that can never be unlearned but the event in the lesson with genetics has stuck with me forever for you see i learned that my taste buds cannot taste ptc PTC stands for this. We'll stick with PTC. And it's a chemical that can be sold on these paper strips. It can be purchased under the name PTC paper, and it's popular in genetic classes because it has this fascinating quality. Some can put it on their tongue and immediately say, yuck, this is bitter. And some people, when they place the paper on their tongue, taste absolutely nothing. Well, unless you consider the paper. Does paper have a taste in itself? That's a debatable question, but the point is some people can taste PTC and some people cannot taste PTC. And I was really disappointed because I remember that I was the only one there that could not taste it. So there was everyone getting this amazing science experience and I couldn't taste a thing. Well, there may have been more than just me that couldn't taste it in the classroom that day, but they didn't seem as concerned by the fear of missing out of the PTC paper as I was. I remember someone trying to make me feel better, saying, Oh, but it tastes bitter. You're actually lucky. Then they tried to describe what it tasted like to me. But it's not the same. I guess I'll never know for myself what it would have tasted like. Of course, the reason PTC paper is used in genetic classes is because the trait of being able or not being able to taste PTC is based on genetics. 
A reminder from our Intro to Heredity unit that genes are portions of DNA, and they have the ability to code for a characteristic, a trait, like being able to taste or not to taste PTC. Now, we do want to point out that many traits are actually coded for by interactions of more than one gene, like eye color, which is quite complex and determined by interactions of many genes together. In fact, the ability to taste PTC or not may involve some other gene interactions. There's even different ranges for how bitter the chemical may taste because there may be more kinds of alleles than we'll mention. More about that later. But since we do know that the ability to taste PTC or not taste PTC is at least heavily impacted by a specific gene, it does make it powerful for genetic classes. One thing I have found so interesting is that my parents can both taste PTC. So why can't I? Recall that humans have 46 chromosomes. Chromosomes are made up of DNA and protein. It's a condensed unit of DNA. My whole genetic code is represented by these chromosomes. You inherit 23 chromosomes from your mother and 23 chromosomes from your father. Here's all 46 of them right here. As you can see, there are 23 chromosome pairs. Each pair has one chromosome from one parent and one chromosome from my other parent. If we focus on one of these pairs of chromosomes where the PTC taste sensitivity gene may be found, we can see an area where the PTC taste sensitivity gene could be. Let's assume this is the locus where the PTC taste sensitivity gene is found. See how it is pointing to a specific area here? That's because it's on an area of the chromosomes that refer to a specific gene that codes for a trait. Now, remember how this chromosome is from mom. This one is from dad. Each parent contributes an allele, which is a variant of a gene. An allele is a variety of a gene, a form of a gene. The alleles could be the same form of the gene or different forms of the gene, but regardless, in this case, they're forms of the gene involved with PTC taste sensitivity. So if PTC taste sensitivity is being used as a one gene trait example, and as we mentioned, it may not be that simple, then your DNA code has a gene related to PTC taste sensitivity. Together, the two alleles you inherit, the forms of that gene, determine the trait of tasting PTC or the trait of not tasting PTC. That gene is involved with coding for taste receptors on your tongue, and the receptors you have can make a difference for whether you taste PTC or not. The alleles are typically represented by letters, since this is all about tasting, let's use the letter T. But wait, it matters whether I represent it as a capital or lowercase letter. If I use a capital letter to represent an allele, it means that it's a dominant allele. If one or both of the alleles you inherited for a trait are dominant, then it will be expressed. More about that later. If I use a lowercase letter to represent an allele, that means it's a recessive allele. Recessive alleles are typically not expressed unless there is no dominant allele present. Now, remember that you have two allele copies. So the combination you could have here could be big T, big T, big T, little t, or little t, little t. These are called genotypes, your genetic makeup. Genotypes can help determine a phenotype, which is a physical characteristic. You'll notice when writing genotypes, I put the capital letters first, if it contains a capital letter. That's not because the order matters, it's a formatting formality that capitals are written first. It turns out that being able to taste PTC is a dominant trait. 
That means the phenotype, which is a PTC taster, is due to a genotype that includes at least one dominant allele. So which genotypes can taste PTC then? Well, big T, big T can. Both of those alleles are dominant. So can big T, little t, because remember, it only takes the presence of one dominant allele. In fact, the only genotype in this simplified example to not be able to taste PTC would be little t, little t. So obviously that is what I am. I am the little t, little t genotype, which results in my non-taster phenotype. But my parents can taste PTC. So what genotypes would they have to be? Well, if they were both big T, big T, that wouldn't be possible. If one was big T, big T, and one was big T, little t, that still wouldn't be possible. Remember, you have to get an allele, a form of a gene, from each parent. If my parents do taste PTC and I do not, then my parents have the genotype big T, little t, and their phenotype is PTC taster. Punnett squares can be used to determine the probabilities of offspring having certain genotypes, which then can be used to determine their phenotypes. But Punnett squares are for another Amoeba Sisters video. Before we end, one more thing to mention. In this example, the dominant trait of being able to taste PTC is more common than the recessive trait of not being able to taste PTC. And one could jump to an assumption that dominant traits are more common, especially since it only takes the presence of one dominant allele to show up in the phenotype, at least in Mendelian inheritance. But the dominant trait is not always more common in a population because it's possible that the dominant allele itself is more rare. That can be the case with some forms of polydactyly, that is, being born with extra fingers. Some forms of polydactyly can be a dominant trait caused by the presence of at least one dominant allele. However, the dominant allele may not be as common in the population, and the condition of having extra fingers is generally rare. Well, that's it for the Muba Sisters, and we remind you to stay curious. I love the fact that they say that you should stay curious because that's the problem that we have. People aren't curious and they don't ask questions anymore. Gosh darn it. This microphone is driving me insane today. So I'm going to tell you exactly what this um, chemical that people obtained did. And while everyone, <clears throat> excuse me, talks about these two receptors uh, when it came to COVID and its methodology. I'm here to tell you they missed the underlying thing. So uh, let me explain that better. So in at the University of Kentucky, when I was studying uh, in med school, we were taking seminars. One of the seminars were um, examining uh, cases from the New England Journal of Health and assessing what they missed. You know, that when you end up on the New England Journal of Health, <laughs> it means you died and they had no idea why. And so I took that class because I wanted to sit down next to and share a desk for a whole semester with the guy that was finding that HIV and malaria correlation uh, pertaining to hydroxychloroquine, FYI. So the reason I bring that up is because sometimes people die and then afterwards they can find it out. But uh, there's a reason that you can't find out exactly what the target mechanisms are for COVID. So I know that a lot of these doctors, because they have the title, so they can take this and, and push it out, I hope, um, are missing the plot on how to effectively 
protect individuals. So one thing uh, that, uh, you know, is, is, is huge right now is uh, that what is in your baby's gut may affect their brain development, right? And that's key, right? It's extremely key because uh, it, it, it regulates almost everything. I've said the, the, the gut is, you know, just that, an independent feedback mechanism for your body and how to work. So it's important for us to understand, uh, you know, what it is that we're, what we're going to be looking at today because we have COVID research. We have all these amazing uh, softwares that uh, can teach you how to do this. Let me show you someone walking you through the software from University of California, San Francisco. That's how the actual program is named. It's Chimera X. Please take a look at how they use it. It's a tutorial. I will be showing you how to make Chimera X and uh, it is an open source free software. You can make very beautiful 3D protein models With. and export them for your research publication. If you haven't downloaded Chimera X, you can this website. You see SF Chimera X and then go to download. Then you can download the web uh, software for free. How do we call out the protein that we want? And we will start from the database. When you open the Chimera X, it will have a welcome interface like this to welcome you. And you see that there, here are some example proteins. They have this four digit uh, coding. This one coded as 7KKJ. We click into it, then it will open that protein structure for us. And uh, here, it also tells you what this protein is. 7KJ is the synthetic nettle body. This is that antibody that we see that was on top of the coronavirus spike protein. Oh, okay, so let me show you. If you come here, down here to the command, when you type open one IRQ, press enter, then you get the other uh, protein. Where do you find these four digit protein database codes. So you can go to just a quick plug-in. Welcome to my channel, Drabalmed. This is my scientific illusion channel. Please give it like and subscribe and let's get back to our 3D proteins. RCSB PDB in database. And if you type in uh, the protein that is your research topic, then you can find that for this code. So for example, I type in coronavirus spike protein, you get all these uh, different confirmation of the spike protein and you see they have this four uh, digit code over here so you can use it to call out your protein in camera x open six and zk it is over here so we have our uh, coronavirus spike protein if you want to learn more about camera x and scientific illustration you can watch these videos well, so that was just a quick introduction, but let me introduce you to something else first. Well, you know what? Actually, let me say something. There is a speculation out there that medications can change a genetic mutation, either that be done artificially or spontaneously, and that's wrong. 
What it can do, medications like antivirals, antifungals, they can manage sim symptoms, right? So they can alleviate symptoms caused by the genetic mutation. For example, if the genetic mutation leads to an overproduction of a specific molecule in the body, a medication might help to reduce the levels and consequently uh, mitigate the symptoms. Enzyme replacement therapy, that's another thing, but in certain genetic disorders, when the mutation causes a deficiency, I stress that, of an enzyme, a type of protein maybe, or vitamin that needs to be made from this enzyme or protein. Enzyme replacement therapy can be used. This involves providing missing enzyme to the body, which can improve symptoms and quality of life for individuals um, with you know, some sort of genetic mutation disorder. Another one is gene targeting therapies, but you would have to use CRISPR where, you know, you get in there and it's called gene editing. You clip parts of your genetic code and then you insert. So taking a pill and fixing it, not really. So vitamins, as we know, are very important. And I'll speak from a personal perspective, like my vitamin D levels are below seven. For me to be able to sustain higher levels, I have to go get IV drips every single time, um, you know, at least once a week. One, uh, there's, well, there's actually two factors hindering me from that. One is time. And two is, you know, finances. They make it very difficult for people to fix things. So I'm going to introduce you to a vitamin and pay, pay attention here. Because a lot of people think that if they take vitamin supplements from their mouth, you know, that they can actually fulfill whatever um, reservoirs their bodies are missing. You must understand that if you are hindered in specific vitamins in your body already that are not functioning correctly, you will not absorb. As someone after having a GI injury, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm the round person that has malnutrition. Like I'm malnutrition. I have malnutrition, period. So I'm going to introduce you to something that will make sense as to the conversations we had in regards to what the vaccine was doing to people. Now pay attention. Vitamin K is a fat-soluble vitamin, and it is very important in several biological processes in your body, specifically related to blood clotting and bone health. There's two main forms. There's vitamin K1, um, I think that's the philoquinone, and then the other one is the minoquinone, which is vitamin K2. Now here's what they do. In regards to bone health, vitamin K is involved in maintaining your bones to be strong because it aids in the regulation of calcium, which aids in the regulation of vitamin D, right? Which is also, by the way, vitamin D is called vitamin D, but it's actually a hormone. Anyway. Um, so basically what vitamin K does, it activates a protein called osteocalcin, which is necessary for binding calcium to the bone matrix. Now, this process contributes to bone mineralization and overall bone density. And for my ladies out there, you all know that when you head into menopause and we drop certain uh, hormones, what happens? we start having issues with osteoporosis and um, bone regeneration and, and our density. So why? Because again, vitamin D is a hormone and it also plays uh, a big role in regards to the female reproductive feedback cycle, right? And so it's a, it's a, it's a big deal, right? Vitamin K does a lot. Now, in addition to that, vitamin K is involved in regulating your cell growth, which has implications for normal cellular functions and possibly cancer preventative. However, 
um, you know, not a lot of people talk about that, that vitamin K actually assists in cancer prevention. I think uh, there was a study in... I'm trying to remember because it was so long ago with that Korean guy. There was a Korean guy. He's dead. <laughs> and I found that document, believe it or not, in India, um, hard copy, where they were examining uh, a patient in India that had uh, their blood type had changed after uh, severe abdominal surgery. They went from a B to O and they couldn't understand it. Anyway, as they were investigating that, it happened um, that the genetic code of that individual in that paper, and this is where the vitamin K kicks in, the genetic code of that individual was um, highly deficient. Well, the genetic code had altered, they say, because they were highly deficient in vitamin D, which means that they were shedding portions of additional code received in generations. It was like so way out there. That's why I said we're going into a rabbit hole. But hear me out on this. The one thing people don't talk about is how vitamin K is responsible for cardiovascular health and blood clotting, right? So a lot of people don't talk about that. So in regards to cardiovascular health, um, vitamin K plays a role in maintaining the health. Vitamin K deficiency or the inability to disperse vitamin K in your body leads to myocarditis. In addition, Vitamin K is an essential player in the blood clotting process. It produces the proteins known as clotting factors that are necessary for blood coagulation. Now, keep that in mind as we continue, because we're just going to listen to what vitamin K benefits are, and then we're going to go back to where I'm going with this. Excellence meets excellent results. Today we're going to talk about vitamin K. Vitamin K is a fat-soluble vitamin and is necessary for arterial health and blood clotting as well as bone health. So today we're going to go into the two different forms that you can get from foods. Okay, So vitamin K, vitamin K1, is derived from plant-based uh, sources, so green leafy veggies. It's very important for vitamin K to uh, improve or normalize blood clotting. So if you cut yourself, you're able to clot and heal. So if you lack vitamin K1, you can have increased bruising. So you bump your elbow and all of a sudden it's just bruising, right? You don't know why. And then bleeding of the gums. Now, bleeding of the gums can be related to, you know, poor dental hygiene, you know, gingivitis or different types of uh, gum disease. However, if you have abnormal bleeding of the gums, look into vitamin C deficiency as well as vitamin K1 deficiency. You have to understand that. Okay, someone just alerted me that someone was like, is this the Korean guy that's dead? No, the Korean researcher was from 1999. He also had papers showing that intramuscular injections of uh, vitamin C close to sites of cancer actually eliminated cancer by refortifying mitochondria. So it's not him. Um, I'm just showing you a video from a guy online, a doctor who's explaining to you the importance of vitamin K. So that way you guys can understand where we're going with this rabbit hole. Vitamin uh, K1 is poorly absorbed 
and only about 10% gets into our system uh, from your plant-based sources. However, um, because it's poorly absorbed, it tends to get recycled in our system, right? So we actually measure or dose patients in micrograms and not milligrams when we do vitamin K. So vitamin K can actually convert to vitamin K2, which leads us to where do you get vitamin K2? Vitamin K2 you can get from animal products, eggs, grass-fed butter, meats, uh, certain cheeses, fermented foods like sauerkraut or annatto, and your gut will also produce K2. So it's important to have proper gut function, right? So with any fat-soluble vitamins, vitamin D, E, K, or A, you want to have proper gallbladder function, proper liver function for bile production, and so forth. So it's very important for a proper gut and gallbladder and liver function in order to absorb vitamin K2 and also produce K2. So what does K2 do? It increases absorption of calcium to your bones and your teeth, right? However, it decreases the deposition of calcium into the arteries, so it reduces clotting in the arteries. So that's a very important factor. So it's not just about absorption of calcium, it's how it's modulated and how it puts calcium in the right places and not in the wrong places like your arteries and your heart um, valves. So it's very important for that. So if we need to support gallbladder because you've had, let's say, a gallbladder removed, right? And you don't have the proper storage areas, you need to be able to supplement uh, with maybe ox bile or dandelion extracts in order to support the gut function and bile function. So proper stomach. So if you have things like, let's say, SIBO or irritable bowel or any type of bowel disease, you're not going to convert uh, or produce K2. So it's very important to normalize gut function, normalize gallbladder function, normalize liver function, and have the proper sources of food to have the proper levels of K, uh, vitamin K. Now, if you look at it, vitamin K is partly plant sources and partly animal products. So a balanced diet is necessary for you to get the proper levels of vitamin K. So if you're a strict vegetarian, uh, you want to make sure you have enough vitamin K in your diet, right? And also those patients who have, let's say, blood thinners, right, because they had a cardiovascular event. Uh, those patients need to be careful with vitamin K, um, but it's important for them to check their clotting factor, right, to, to make sure their clotting is normal on their medication and if you want to supplement with, with K, you want to be able to make sure with your doctors that the clotting is normal for you, uh, for those people who have cardiovascular risks. So it's very important to do that. So uh, to, um, to basically to recap this, it's important for clotting, it's important for calcium absorption to the right areas and not creating deposition into the wrong areas. You need both plant and animal sources to get the right levels of vitamin K2. Okay. This is Dr. Jin Sung, where clinical excellence meets excellent results. And we'll see you guys next week on the healthy side. Have an awesome day. All right, that was done. And I couldn't move fast enough. All right.
Thank you very much, Rumble. Where do we go? Okay, so now that you've seen that video in regards to what vitamin K is, let me tell you. Uh, it's a well-known fact and well-documented that there's a very um, good correlation between low vitamin K and liver disease. And that is that impaired vitamin K absorption, the liver plays a vital role in actually producing proteins necessary for blood clotting, like I've said before. Obviously, it's also the house of the H2 receptor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But liver disease, especially advanced liver disease, can impact the liver's ability to produce these proteins, potentially leading to deficiencies in vitamin K-depending clotting factors, right? Like factor eight, uh, we've talked about this, factor eight, we talked about this, right? Factor eight. We talked about this in the Monsanto video. Now, it is a fat-soluble vi vitamin. And um, since it's a fat-soluble vitamin, uh, people that have liver disease um, have issues in the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins. The damage in your liver may disrupt the processing of dietary fats and fat-soluble vitamins, which can contribute to deficiencies, including vitamin K, vitamin B, da, 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 da. But here it is. Vitamin K is essential for blood clotting. So let's pretend that vitamin K was targeted by me. Say I created a, a RNA strand to hijack your machinery and deregulate vitamin K. That would mean you would be bleeding a lot from your eyes. You would be susceptible to bleeding like nobody's business. But if I was to up regulate it because what if, you know, that RNA vaccine, oh, oops, that RNA strand that I created, I'm sorry, that mRNA, I gave it to Joe and Joe, his cell received it as down regulation. Then that would mean that Joe would be susceptible to having bleeding eyes and ears and mouths if a certain chemical was inhaled. Whereas I give it to Sally, but Sally's DNA will recognize it on its receptor as an upregulator. Well, if it's upregulated, then it will upregulate clotting factors and we will see some really strange things happening. It creates, what is it called? Mm, clotting disorders, right? And suddenly you see weird clots appear like they're really hard and strong. So vitamin K does a lot of things. Vitamin K overproduction, there's actually a term, it's called hypervitaminosis K. It's very rare and it's limited to document, very few documented cases, documented cases. Vitamin K, again, fat soluble, right? Kind of just like vitamin A, vitamin D, Vitamin E, hypervitaminosis K is theoretically a result from extremely high doses of supplemental vitamin K, that's what they say, which is uncommon through the diet alone. But excessive vitamin K supplementation is generally unnecessary in most individuals because if you upregulate, and how do you upregulate? Let me, let me make it simple. I want you guys to envision a ball and that's a cell. Now. If you wanna make vitamin K, cause your body needs it, it'll start craving shit, right? Usually if we listen to our bodies of what we want to eat, that probably have vitamin K. How do we, how does it signal your body? Oh my gosh, you're, you're fiending for milk because you know, you need calcium and it's like, hey, your body's smart. And it's like, yo, the you know, when you drink milk, I get calcium a lot easier, let's just say, right? 
The cell itself starts to put on antennas at the top, begging for vitamin K. That's upregulation. That means instead of having three antennas like it normally does, suddenly it has 50 and your body's like, holy shit, we need that vitamin K. Now what happens if there is no vitamin K and there's too many antennas and very little to go around? This hyperregulation causes blood clotting abnormalities. And in excessive amounts leads to clotting related issues like thrombosis, blood clots, almost everywhere. So, however, people that have excessive vitamin K do not have blood clotting abnormalities and instead they may bleed very easy. Now, another thing that excessive vitamin K can do, excessive, so vitamin K excessive causes blood clotting. No vitamin K causes bleeding from the eyes and shit. Interference with anticoagulant medications is something that we should think about. So if people have high vitamin K because their body is just like upregulating it, that interacts with anticoagulant medications like warfarin. So potentially affecting their process. Warfarin is supposed to thin your blood out, your blood out. But if you're upregulating it, it'll fight it to not thin it out. I'm trying to make it clear. <laughs> it's important to emphasize that severe vitamin K toxicity is rare and typically just occurs from excessive supplementation and not from normal diet rich foods. Vitamin K is normally found in foods like, like the doctor said, in spinach, kale, broccoli. And the body usually excretes the majority of it. So we don't know if it's poisoning or it's just upregulation. Because see, all the papers that have been written about that pre-COVID have been scrubbed. And so osteoporosis is a risk for deficiency. Blood clotting. Blood clotting is regulated by vitamin K. All right. So now... Let's get into what a chimera means in science terms again. Body is composed of cells that are genetically distinct as if they are from different individuals and sometimes they really are from different individuals. Many people's bodies contain at least a few living cells from another person. More rarely, a single person can be a fairly equal mix of cells that appear to derive from two different individuals. Biologists are also creating chimeras, whose bodies are a mix of cells from different species, such as pigs, with a few monkey cells in most of their organs. All animals develop from a single fertilized egg, so in theory, every single cell in the body should have exactly the same genome. But chimeras can arise in several ways. The most dramatic is, when two embryos that would normally develop into non-identical twins fuse in the womb. Parts of the resulting individual derive from one embryo and parts from another. People with this form of chimerism can appear entirely normal, so it is usually discovered only by accident. For this reason, it is not clear how common it is. Sometimes there are visible signs, such as differently colored eyes or patches of skin of different shades. When individuals are a mix of male and female cells, there can also be abnormalities in the reproductive organs. More commonly, cells can be exchanged during pregnancy.
Most mothers have cells from their babies growing in various parts of their body after pregnancy, and these cells can survive for at least 40 years. The number of these cells is tiny though, so this phenomenon is known as microchimerism. Cells from the mother, and maybe even from previously born siblings, can get into the bodies of children too. Chimerism can also occur as a result of organ transplants. Obviously the transplanted organ comes from another individual, but cells from that organ can also start growing in other parts of the body. The blood and even the semen of one transplant recipient derived from his donor, according to a recent report. For decades, biologists have also been creating chimeras that are a mix of cells from different species. For instance, mice with human immune systems have long been used for medical research. Several groups around the world are now trying to grow specific organs in another species, such as a human heart in a pig. The aim of this work is to provide organs for transplantation, but the creation of animal-human chimeras is controversial. Chimeric animals are often created during genetic engineering and CRISPR genome editing. Stem cells are modified outside the body and injected into early embryos. The resulting animals have a mix of modified and unmodified cells. Those that produce modified sperm or eggs are then bred to produce animals with the modification in every cell. Plants can beat chimeras too. Much of the fruit we eat comes from chimeric plants because of the widely used practice of grafting fruit-producing branches onto the roots of another variety or species. The term chimera derives from the mythical beast called the chimera, supposedly a lion with a snake for a tail and a goat's head protruding from its back. All right, again, talking about chimera. Well, let's talk about genetic algorithms. Why genetic algorithms? That's where the future lies. Coders have been coding AI and um, introducing machine learning techniques for years. But what Obamacare did was allow for genetic feeding and everyone lined up to the DNA harvesting parties to check for COVID, right? They all knew it was a bunk test. They were just connecting, collecting genetic material for those that haven't been on the system or were lost in translation. Uh, they have been feeding an algorithm the one that the University of California, San Francisco has, and you will understand how the science works. So here are what genetic algorithms are. With evolution in my computer, I hear you say. Have I been clickbaited again? No, because today we will explore one class of algorithms called genetic algorithms. Genetic algorithms can be used to generate solutions for problems for which we have no way to calculate a solution. And that is what we need right now. Genetic algorithms are part of a bigger group of algorithms called evolutionary algorithms. And they use natural selection to approximate solutions for a given problem. For instance, you can use it to generate the pack list for your backpack. But another way is to use it to generate the form of an antenna, as done by NASA in 2006. And this is called an evolved antenna, which a genetic algorithm generated to find the best radiation pattern. It looks a bit funky, but who am I to argue with evolution? So let's see how it works. 
A genetic algorithm uses a population of possible solutions. In our case, that would be combinations of items in our backpack. Each specimen in our population has a genome that encodes the solution. It is a binary encoding of the content in our backpack. A one says that this item of the item list is inside the backpack and when there is a zero, it is left out. The set of all current solutions at a given point during the algorithm is called the generation. Generation zero, the starting generation, is just a random mess of possible solutions. So we start our evolutionary process with complete chaos. Now it's time to start the process of natural selection to simulate the survival of the fittest. We use a fitness function to determine how good a given solution is. In our case, the fitness function returns the value of the packed items as long as it fits into the weight limit. If the weight limit is exceeded, the fitness of the specimen is zero. After that, we are selecting the parents for the next generation of solutions. Generally speaking, a solution with a higher fitness score is more likely selected for reproduction than one with a very low fitness score. Like in real life, the buff dudes get the girls. We choose two parents and cut their genome at a random spot in half and switch the endings. This is called the single point crossover function and it generates two new solutions for the next generation. We repeat the process as long as we don't have enough specimens in the next generation. Did you notice how by crossing two solutions we got a better one? I find it really incredible to see that natural selection not only works in nature but even simulated in the computer it generates better solutions from generation to generation. But there's one thing to note here. Because the selection and the crossover function is governed by randomness. There is no way to guarantee that we won't destroy our best solutions. That's where a process called elitism comes in. Elitism simply means we select n top solutions and just copy them into the next generation. We will just keep our top two. The next step in evolution is the introduction of mutation. Mutation helps to discover new solutions that weren't otherwise possible with the gene pool we started with. During the mutation phase, we simply change a random bit of the genome with a certain probability. That's it, here's our new generation of solutions. This algorithm loops as long as no satisfying solution has been found or for a maximum number of generations. Now you understand genetic algorithms from a high bird's eye perspective. And despite the fact that there are different ways of implementing genetic algorithms, they all share the list of following ingredients. A genetic representation of a solution. A function to generate new solutions. A fitness function to evaluate solutions. A select function to select the solutions to generate the next generation. A crossover function and a mutation function. Each of these ingredients can be totally different from what we use today. Some problems have solutions that can't be expressed with a string of ones and zero but need an array of integer or floating point values. Some genetic algorithms even use graphs to express their solutions. Sometimes a single point crossover is not enough and you want to cross over multiple times and maybe even with different parents, which interestingly has shown to increase the quality of generated solutions. There is a lot more to learn and we are just scratching the surface. But I hear you say, is it really worth it? Let's see. I wrote a function that generates things called t1 till tn. t1 
T1 has the value and the weight of 1. T2 has the value and the weight of 2. I think you got the idea. Let's say we have the weight limit of 3 kilograms again. And I generate 10 things. So the maximum weight and value of all these things is 10 plus 9 plus 8 and so on, 55. Which means the best combination is just to pick all items and put them in the bag. This is a good thing. Normally, as I said before, it is impossible for us to know if a generated solution by a genetic algorithm is in fact the best and optimal solution. But in this case, we just know it. We can now calculate the value for the best solution and check how long our genetic algorithm takes to find it. And that's what I did. For each test of the genetic algorithm, we print the number of items it got to choose from, the time it took to find the best solution or to process 100 generations, the number of generations it took and how good the solution is compared to the optimal one where a 100% means it is spot on. For the first couple of items, it just got the best solution in the random seed, which totally makes sense if the number of combinations is below 10 and the initial generation has 10 random solutions in it. The probability that the best solution is in there is really good. For 20 items it just took 0.015 seconds to find the best solution. Compared to almost one second for the brute force approach, that is more than 60 times faster. And the calculation time is not changing with the number of items. Finding the best solution for 21 items was even quicker. That's because the calculation time is growing with the number of generations. And I didn't stop here. I also tried to calculate the best solution for 77 items. What would normally take over 5 billion years only took 0.18 seconds. And the solution is, with 95.27% accuracy, good enough for me. Actually, none of these runs with a 100 generations has an accuracy less than 90%, which is, in my opinion, astonishing. Of course, this algorithm is not deterministic. And every time I start it, I get a slightly different result. But with more generations and even more generated solutions per generation or multiple runs, I will get a higher probability to find the best or the good enough solution. Genetic algorithms are fascinating and there are quite interesting fields of applications for them as well. They are really good at approximating solutions for hard combinatorial problems like scheduling problems or timetable problems. But they are also used to really simulate evolution. But with everything great, there are also limitations. The most obvious limitations when it comes to genetic algorithms is the runtime of the fitness function. If you need a long time to evaluate the fitness of a solution, it takes really long to generate solutions for the next generation. And therefore, generating a good solution will take a lot longer. If you want to create your own genetic algorithm right now, there might be a video of me explaining how to do it in Python. At least that is my plan for next week. If there is not, make sure to subscribe now and hit the notification. Genetic algorithms for the best solution. So let's pretend I have the software and I input all the values because it's just software, right? Just molecularly based. And I say, well, we have climate change and I need to make, uh, and there's no water. So now I'm going to genetically modify human beings to not need as much water as they do to survive. 
and boom. Suddenly, I pump that into the software and it tells me, all right, these are the genetic codes you need to make sure you can survive. You know, there was an idea like that a long, long time ago. Do you guys remember Suzuki, the first Greta Thunberg? And then how in Australia, all of you are going to die. There's a hole in the ozone. Again, Australia, the experimental continent. I mean, so is Africa, but Africa is the testing ground. The proving ground is Australia. So what did they start implementing in Australians? Take a wild guess. Well, they needed to see how they can manipulate the diet or the medications in order to create some form of, um, uh, what is it? Melanocyte research. Uh, Tori, that sounds crazy. Well, allow me to show you the coalition of sciences in, at the NIH being funded talking about this. Uh, so that way you can understand. I'm going to go to the right place. Well, let me introduce you to this um, video because it's um, important before I delve into it. Now, is all this genetic manipulation bad? Of course it is. We don't need that, right? But remember, God gave us the, the mind and the tools, so it's not all bad. It can benefit things. But I want you to see how a crisis creates a solution. Please look at the title of this, Chimeras. What are they and how could they be useful? Allow me to begin this. I will be skipping through because it's, you know, uh, an hour long lecture and a pitch for more money, but please pay attention. This is our last, last of our series of caucuses this year. As you know, we've had many things, avian flu, cancer, uh, Alzheimer's, and we hope next year to have another good program. And you're always welcome from your offices to make any suggestions that you may have for subject you might want to hear. As you know, this year, our co-chairs, Sherry Bullitt, uh, Rush Holt, Lois Caps, and Mike Castle have been people who were instrumental originally in the last several years of doubling the NIH. And they have worked hard this year. As a matter of fact, Mike Castle, right now, Congressman Mike Castle from Delaware, has a letter out encouraging everyone, every office, to sign on to the leadership, asking the leadership to put in another $2 billion into the labor HHS account. The reason is very simple. There's a big hole there this year. There's the NIH is flat funded in the House. In the Senate, uh, Senator Specter was able to put in $220 million above last year. But it is really unfortunate as we go into the fall, into the end game, into the lame duck session after November 13th, how desperately we need your support to ensure that the NIH gets the money. Now, I know that you're here today because you're committed to the NIH. You know about the momentum that we need. You know about what it does for the health of Americans, their mortality, what it means to us competitively. So there's no reason to preach to you about the NIH, but I do want you to think. And in the fall, when you come back, think about the NIH as a major priority. Today, we're going to learn about skin cancers which are common and potentially deadly uh, human malignancy, and whose incidence is linked to sun exposure. Coming from Maine, I used to see you how to there, I guess. It is in princi principle among the most preventable of human cancers. However, there are many different ways to cure it, many ways to treat it, 
And we're very fortunate today to have with us a renowned scientist who has spent most of his life on research on skin cancers. <coughs> Dr. David Fisher is the director of the melanoma program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dr. Fisher received his BA in biology and chemistry from Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. His doctorate in cell biology from Rockefeller University in New York and his MD from Cornell University Medical College in New York. I don't want to add that he's also a cellist and has a degree in a cello from some of the school. So allow me to say, I play the cello too. That's one of the instruments that I can play. <laughs> but having said that, if you listen to him carefully, this is him negotiating Senate and congressional affirmations to pledge money, your money, and to stuff it in a bill, like he said, to go to them. Now, this gentleman, very bright, you know, obviously Fauci made, you know, pretty good on him. But he discusses um, skin cancer. This research was funded when Australia had their ozone issues, okay? Super ozone issues. So they were looking for other avenues to stop melanocytes from doing so. So I'm just going to play a couple minutes here, and then we're going to go to the end to the Q&A because that tells you more. ...that is essentially a brick wall, the signal never gets through. And so we decided to do a simple scientific kind of proof of principle. If this pathway is right, we, we, we reasoned, if we could find a drug that could activate this target bypassing this brick wall, if the drug had a small enough structure that it could penetrate into the cell, in principle, if we rub this drug on the skin of a a red-haired mice, it ought to reactivate the pigment pathway. Okay? So we did this. So here is the red-head mice, and, and we shaved it. I apologize, it's, it's not, you know, they don't mind that much. It really grows right back. But um, here you can at least see the skin. And what we found is, in fact, that this drug did indeed darken the skin. We, we were not cosmetics experts. We just kind of smeared it on once a day. And basically, after several weeks, this is what the mice looked like. So all of these mice began looking exactly like this one. I think this one is actually that mouse over there. So I want you guys to think back to spray tans or lotions that you put on your skin to enhance a tan, a fake tan. This all derived from genetic manipulation that they attempted to find ways to assist people in producing melanocytes. Uh, not producing, but having them activated because albinos, they actually have melanocytes, but they just don't show color. They're, they're, they're like, they, they lack an enzyme that makes it express itself to be like, Hey, look, I'm darker. So, um, this, uh, th this research from the NIH not only assisted them in understanding, uh, how they can genetically manipulate people, um, you know, using CRISPR and retrovirals and mRNA vaccines to change, but they were looking at topical things that you could put on your skin that can change or induce an expression. So, for example, when I tan, okay, I have olive skin. So that means if I go to the tanning bed or outside and I tan, my first tan for a period of six months will be a red-brown burn. Once I peel after three days, after that, no matter how much sun I get, I start to tan. 
That's like an activation. It's hyper stimulated. This is what olive skin people have. They get hyper stimulated and therefore it exerts. Whereas in countries like uh, Africa, their melanocytes are constantly expressing. Their genetic code is to constantly express. Not because of sun. I mean, with sun, it'll induce maybe upregulate it, meaning make more, make more color, right? But it's constantly expressed, meaning that theirs are hyperregulated. It's kind of like thyroid, for those of you to make it simple. Uh, when you have a thyroid issue, you can either have hyperthyroidism or hypo. Hyper means it's upregulated, meaning your metabolism is like fire. But metabolism regulates not only how you digest food and that you can't gain weight, but you're aging too. So it speeds up all metabolism. Whereas when you have hypothyroidism, there's no way you're going to lose weight because you can't metabolize as fast as someone that has a regulated thyroid. So olive skin is that medium blend, right, of I can make it when I need it. Whereas the fair skin people in Scandinavia, their melanocytes are slow or unable to be upregulated because it causes toxicity, hence why they burn and whatever. They shouldn't be in the sun. So this is, this is what I wanted to show you. Research at the NIH to determine, uh, you know, genetic manipulations that can assist, right? Um, and here's where they're discussing other methods of altering genetic expression, such as rub some lotion on the skin, right? And therefore, through your skin, it stimulates a genetic expression. Pay attention, because we all think we have to be injected with something to get things changed. We can also ingest things and change. For example, ingestion, heroin. If you touch opi opioids, right, that triggers and creates an artificial upregulation of opioid receptors, hence why addicts will always be seeking an opioid because now they have a lot of antennas sitting on their cells demanding the opioid to bind. And this is why when they go through um, detox, they actually hurt. So here, he just showed you that they had a cream that they could put on the skin that would then upregulate you genetically. So you don't necessarily need something injected in you to be able to manipulate your genetic expression. Let me continue. But every other mouse received the drug, the other mice received just the control vehicle that had been put on their skin. So these mice became profoundly dark. We asked, is this real pigment that was being activated? And we asked this in multiple ways. Chemically, microscopically, this was indistinguishable from human melanin. You, you could not tell the difference. It is exactly the same melanin that is present in human skin. And here is a depiction of this. We looked at those dying cells in the skin of these dark mice. We took the dark mice and challenged them with a single dose of ultraviolet radiation and looked for cell death. Remember, this is the common normal response of keratinocytes to UV radiation if they've been injured. Here is the fair-skinned mouse without the drug, plenty of cell death. The fair-skinned mouse with the drug, much, much less. And this is a genetically black mouse receiving the same dose of UV. So the drug, in fact, protected the fair-skinned mouse virtually to the same degree as if it had been born with dark pigment. Here is a stain that takes the fair-skinned mouse that remained fair with just the control topical, and when we look at increasing doses of UV in the, in the 
a green stain, we are actually staining for damaged DNA. And you can see that virtually every nucleus of every cell in, this, in the epidermis is lighting up with DNA damage. But the darkened mice, or genetically black mice, are protected and are not seeing that DNA damage. And finally, we took these mice and exposed them to chronic UV radiation and measured the incidence of skin cancers. And this was actually done in a genetic background that was extremely sensitive to development of skin cancers. It had a, a second mutation that probably would develop skin cancer even if they were not exposed to UV radiation. What we saw is that all of these mice began as fair-skinned mice. Half of the mice received just the vehicle, so they remained fair-skinning bed use and skin cancer risk. Um, it varies among individuals, depends on how fair skin, how often you use them, and so on. But there is another detail of this, and I'll try to say this quickly so that I don't lag too much, which is really important, I think, for use of, of not only tanning salons, but also going to the beach. When MSH is made, when UV, what we found is UV hits the keratinocyte and triggers a pathway that results in MSH being expressed, you know, 30 to 40 fold, and then the pathway is all activated from there. If it's capable of responding or not, varies, but it's, that's what's being made. MSH is made as part of a bigger protein, and it's a little piece that gets broken off. There's another piece that gets broken off, which is a protein called beta-endorphin. Beta-endorphin is a protein that actually is a, it's like one of our body's painkillers, and it probably evolved to soothe the sunburn, it's probably part of the same pathway. I mean, we, we have, we're just studying this right now. So, how many of you have watched TV or have experienced this? How many of you have seen people addicted to tanning? Now you get it. Endorphins, you hear about them. They're happy chemicals, they're painkillers. Pay attention. So they discovered that Endorphins are actually released in some people when they generate a lot, when they express, they're, when their melanocytes are expressed. So people that are not olive skinned, that are fair skinned and have trained their bodies or had uh, down regulation genetically to be olive skinned and have that, you know, ability, once they tan, they're addicted to it because it gives them the same effect that, you know, drugs give you. It gives you a high. It makes you feel good. There's no pain. And now he says, hey, we discovered that that was how fair-skinned people coped with the pain of getting sunburned. And we're investigating that too. I want you guys to pay attention to what he's saying. Now, it makes sense as to the addiction into tanning. Listen carefully. And it binds to morphine receptors, opiate receptors. Same thing as morphine, heroin, and so on. It's probably part of the same pathway. It's like one of our body's painkillers. And it probably evolved to soothe the sunburn. It's probably part of the same pathway. I mean, we, we have, we're just studying this right now. And it binds to morphine receptors, opiate receptors. Same thing as morphine, heroin, and so on. I believe it is very plausible that chronic beta-endorphin activation may induce a tolerance that could even conceivably be addictive. A addictive. And I think there is some, you know, in the psychology literature, there are people who say that there is a, I don't know if you'd call it a rush or a feeling of some satisfaction or an urgency that some people will feel towards using 
you know, a tanning salon or going to the beach or sun exposure or whatever, and that there is actually a feeling associated with this. I'm, I'm not an expert in that area, but it is in fact biochemically plausible because a piece of the same molecule that MSH is broken off of actually hits those same pathways. Doctor, uh, does, what about the sun's uh, ultraviolet effect on the eyes? You haven't mentioned that. Yes. Um, so the effects on the eyes are they're they're many and they're they're different depending on, for example, if you have a, a light-colored iris, a, you know, blue eyes versus brown eyes. Um, there's there's a separate injury that can occur if you actually like look directly into the sun. That's a retinal injury that doesn't really involve pigment cells. Um, I don't know of evidence that there is a connection between sun exposure and cancers involving the eye, retinal cancers, melanoma that sometimes happens in the eye. I believe there's a literature on that, but I, I think more research is still needed in that question. Yes, sir. For albinos, their complexion is a function of, is it akin to the, the red-headed syndrome, or do they not have melanocytes? So albinos do have melanocytes, but what they contain is a, an actual mutation in one of the enzymes that makes melanin. So that is downstream of all of these events. And unfortunately, albinos would not respond to the same treatment. In fact, we use them as a control because if, our, if our drug was working in the way we anticipate, the albino mutation is still downstream of that and our drug would not get past it. And, and that's what we found. So that is, the albinos have the melanocytes, but they cannot make any pigment at all. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The skin cancer, there are a lot of reports that vitamin D has some positive effects. And there's a huge research going on now, which is a dietary-based prevention of cancer. And I think one of the reports also that one of the constitutional factors too is has recently shown to interact with one of the proteins that actually uh, gives rise to the skin cancer. Now, there's a dilemma here. The people think you can go to the sun and sit in 15 minutes and get enough light to damage What do you think that the effect of vitamin D on skin cancer and how should we get Right. Uh, yeah, let, let, me, let me repeat the question and uh, sort of summarize it in a way that I think we'll, we'll get to the, what you're trying to ask. So vitamin D is produced normally in one of the critical steps. What, one of the critical steps in making vitamin D in our bodies requires sun exposure. And there has been some recent concern raised by a, a, a number of different scientists and epidemiologists that when people use sunblock very liberally, they're blocking the UV to a degree where it might limit vitamin D levels in our body, making people vitamin D deficient. And if we are, people aren't dying of vitamin D deficiency sort of like during human evolution, but perhaps mild diminished levels of vitamin D in the body might do other things, such as increase the risk of developing cancer. Um, and, and there are some epidemiologic data that are complex data, you know, big population studies with a, you know, sort of small relative risk and, you know, you need a lot of math to convince yourself that there's something going on. What I would say is the following. Number one, and I think the most important point, is that you can supplement vitamin D in your diet such that you don't need UV anymore. And, you know, if it's a matter of supplementing UV, um, su supplementing vitamin D, and blocking UV to protect your skin, I think that's a no-brainer. That, that's my personal view. The, the alternative strategy could be, well, okay, let's not use sunblock so much for the sake of a theoretical vitamin D benefit. Um, I, I, I just 
when, when the, the issue of UV and skin cancer risk is absolutely unequivocal. That's huge. And in the case of melanoma, is unequivocally deadly um, in, in, a, in too high a fraction of, of people. So um, my take is that I think we need more science. We need to understand more if it's true that vitamin D levels somehow relate to cancer risk, how? What is the evidence of that? There is not mechanistic data I'm aware of that compellingly shows this is where it fits into the cancer pathway. You know, it, it's still speculative. That doesn't mean it isn't true. We have to respect these kinds of data. I want you guys to understand that this was done over a decade ago. The research started a decade before that, that they'd been funding forever. And through their research to see how they can stimulate to create melanin, which has bio electric, bioenergetic, and superconductive properties, was funded solely based on the fact that there was a hole in the ozone. And if we look back into, you know, archives of newspapers, at the time that there was a hole in the ozone, you're going to see an uptick of sunscreen. They even pushed the sunscreen from Maui and Sons with colors, right? Red and you know, in the 80s where they had the fluorescent color, you know, put it on your face, surfer dude, right? And they pushed it into that culture so they can get cohorts. And they would study these people on using uh, um, the sunscreens in different areas. Now, if you actually look at your cosmetics that you use, the majority of them already have SPF or titanium dioxide. And this is why I'm extremely picky with my cosmetics. People that know me, I'll buy something super expensive and it'll last me for a year because I put it in the fridge and I put like a quarter of what they tell me. Why? Because I do my homework to make sure that there's no SPF or titanium dioxide in it. Um, and so because that disrupts your, um, your body's ability to express the genes it wants to to reproduce. So as you can see, all he did was rub it on a mouse and it started tanning. And as I've said, if you ever have problems with sleeping, fill up the bathtub, drop in magnesium flakes, sit in it, and you will sleep like you will sleep like a log for at least nine hours. Because your skin is the largest organ you have and it absorbs everything. And, you know, uh, last weekend I was somewhere where I'm, I'm pretty sure that the water I used to wash my body was um, well water which was completely different than the water that I wash my body in my apartment. You know, how we see softeners and water, et cetera. Remember, your skin is the largest organ. It absorbs everything. It can even make you tan if you put something on it, promoting a genetic expression. So genetic manipulation doesn't only happen intravenously. It can happen topically. It can happen by inhaling something. Allow me to play some sound for you. And I want you to listen carefully. This just came up, and this is something that I've said, but this is from a radio show where we have Dr. Jonathan talking about genetic selection. Now, many people say that's evil. You need to listen carefully. There are good things that can come out of technology. Do not get me wrong. Because at the point that we're at now, there is no going back. You cannot revert, revert back to where it was once. Some things just don't 
exist anymore. But always remember, God always wins in the end. Listen carefully to this discussion. You wanted to select in favor of height and cognitive ability, although the predictors you aren't. You can do that now. For, you can do that now. Yeah. Yeah. I know people who are definitely capable of doing it now. And I think within a few years, it'll probably be widely done. I think it's going to be China leading the way. They now have universally subsidized IVF. And once you have subsidized IVF in vitro fertilization, it's just a really quick and easy step to sequence those embryos and test them for cognitive ability. So I think it's going to happen there more than anywhere else first. But yeah, just to give a hypothetical example, if you have 10, 12 embryos, um, what you're going to get in terms of IQ gains between the lowest and the highest scoring embryo is roughly nine, nine and a half points. It's a pretty, pretty really a standard spread. deviation. Yeah. Yeah. Close to a standard deviation. Um, that number is going to increase once we get more knowledge of genetics, but there's, there are upper limits to this, right? Because first of all, there's only so much genetic diversity that you produce between two people, but there is something coming on the horizon. Those of your, your viewers who are not happy with this technology are going to be even less happy with what I say now. And that is that there's a new technique called in vitro gametogenesis IVG, which will allow you to take an adult cell, let's say a a, a, a skin cell, a hair cell, it could be blood or bone, turn it into uh, an induced pluripotent stem cell. And that's the kind of cell that embryos have, right? They're pluripotent stem cells. That's, that's why the stem cell debate was so important, right? If you have a stem cell um, and it's undifferentiated, you can turn it into any kind of cell, right? That's why you could like potentially grow like a liver in a Petri dish or like uh, a skin a batch of skin so that if you're a burn victim, you could actually use one of your skin cells and produce a whole patch of skin, right? Um, but similarly, if you can do that, you can produce... Similarly, if you can produce that, you can similarly produce an egg and even sperm. And this is technology that I've talked about. I studied under the person that actually invented it. This is what they coined as cloning because they didn't want people to be informed of what it is. And so basically, if you cannot have children as a male, I will take your skin cell, I will reduce that down, and I will inject it into an, an egg and then make babies. And so now when you do IVF, because, uh, you know, obviously we have uh, low fertility rates now. Women are finding that they're out of egg reserves at the age of 30. Um, people are very bifurcated and, you know, what do we do? Think about it. The average age of people today giving birth is 30 fucking eight. That's crazy. That went a jump from 16, which was 200 years ago, double. And women cannot have babies. And abortions are actually teaching them how to genetically manipulate more, you know, and get more of a gene pool and more feed that database from the University of California, San Francisco. So, what is selective breeding? That's basically what it is. And it's pretty much uh, evolution, I guess, because we do have those tools. But think of it this way. Like, uh, what was it? Gwen Stefani. She's had a shit ton of kids. She's like 46, 47, right? Pregnant again. Anyway, what she did was she has eggs. So she took them and then they took Blake's sperm and they took it and they made a bunch of babies. A lot of people do this. Now, for her, they actually had to grow the baby enough and then kind of either use a surrogate or herself, who knows, um, but we see it happen, and they create these babies. 
So let's pretend she's having babies and they put it and then the doctors can run tests now and say, this one's going to have this disease. This one's going to have this disease. This is male. This is female. Uh, this one may, you know, be a little person. This one may be this. So you can select <clears throat> from all the babies, the ones that are most possible to survive. Because if you can detect in the genetic code that your kid is going to have acephalia or something, you obviously don't want to put it through that torture. Now, when you conceive naturally, you have no choice. But uh, this is, you know, something that I encountered with my friend. My my uh, very good friend of mine could, you know, she found herself at the age of like 41, unable to have kids. And she was like, what do I do? Well, are you making eggs? Took medication for eggs, turns out low reserves. She didn't have a problem carrying a child. She didn't have a problem doing it. But the thing is, they were so low in reserves because of the foods you eat, because of the sun, because of the creams, because of the water, because of everything. Yeah, Gwen Stefani is 53. That's right. Thanks. Um, anyway, because of all of that, right, she couldn't have children because she couldn't get the egg to go to the right place. So what she did was she went and got her eggs harvested manually instead of them dying trying to move and took her husband's sperm put it in there and out of all of those they said these are the most fittest this one has genetic mutations this one's this this one's that so she was implanted with three embryos and she got two boys out of it and that was it she didn't check on the genetic uh you know the sex or anything it just so happened that those were more physically fit meaning that your baby is most likely to have you know, growth in your tummy and survive and become an actual human being. Now, this is science that has been around for a very, very long time. And I know a lot of my listeners are undergoing IVF and are struggling to have children. And, you know, some of them are as young as 28. And this is what happens. Remember, all he had to do was rub something on the skin of the mouse to get a genetic change. And this technology has been around for a long time. So speaking of chimeras, think about it. Aside from the viral chim chimeras that they create in order to hijack your systems and produce, you know, certain proteins in order to manipulate how your body works. Think of just how long ago chimeras were actually created in respects to taking from multiple genetic pools and creating one human being. That's insane. That's plain God. Not IVF, not your IUI, not your, you know, um, I guess, you know, that's not playing God or, hey, you're a guy and you can't have kids and you get your DNA and you want to have a kid with your wife and you decide, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have a baby that's genetically mine. I don't want to adopt. I want mine. And science can let me do it because science has totally killed my ability to have sperm. Right. And this is a normal thing. Right. And people are going to IVF not because they want to create designer babies. But because now our genetic pool has been bottlenecked to the point where they can't even copulate correctly. So there's a difference between creating chimeric human beings, which is cloning and or genetically selecting cloning uh, of certain qualities from certain DNA lineages to create a chimera human or people that just want to reproduce. And so viruses injections they genetically manipulate we're going to be coming to a point where a lot of things can be affected 
And we have contributed studies through abortions, through women checking themselves to see, you know, oh, you know, the 20 week check, do they have Down syndrome, um, getting amniotic fluid because we're so scared as women. Oh my gosh, what if my baby is like this? I mean, what are you going to do? If it is, are you going to take care of it? Are you going to remove it at 20 weeks? No, you're not. But this is how they scare you or want to help you uh, be at ease if something's wrong to actually obtain your primordial liquid in there and test it and examine it. Now, here is an, uh, an actual lecture from Fuse School called Selective Breeding Evolution. Now, be very careful. There's a difference between people using it for production because we're at a point in society where our food, our air, and our water have been restricting the ability to function reproductively correctly. Here we go. Selective breeding is also known as artificial selection. It is a process by which humans breed plants and animals for particular genetic characteristics. We have been doing this for thousands of years, ever since we first bred food crops from wild plants and started domesticating animals about 10,000 years ago. This is when we made the transition from hunter-gatherers to farmers. We no longer needed to wander around to gather food supplies. Wheat, barley, lentils, peas, rice and potatoes were all cultivated by early citizens. We also began to tame animals for milk, meat and hides. Goats, sheep and chickens are thought to have been the first animals to be domesticated, followed later by bigger animals like horses and oxen for plowing and transportation. Agriculture allowed fewer people to provide more food. Regular, predictable food production led to increased populations and density of people. People now had the time to travel, trade and communicate. Settlements began growing. The first villages and then cities were built near fields of domesticated plants. Civilization was founded upon selective breeding. How does selective breeding work? Parents with the desired characteristics are selected from a mixed population and are bred together. From the offspring, those with the desired characteristics are then also bred together. This continues over many generations until all the offspring show the desired characteristic. Just think of all the breeds of dog that are around today. These were all selectively bred from a common wolf ancestor. The desired characteristics that we select for can be chosen for usefulness or appearance, such as insect and disease resistance in food crops by breeding from the naturally resistant individuals to increase yields, animals which produce more meat or milk to increase yields, domestic dogs with a gentle nature, large or unusual flowers. We just keep breeding and selecting and breeding once more until we hit the desired jackpot. Look at what we've done to modern chickens in 50 years. It's over four times bigger due to selective breeding. By inbreeding parents that are genetically closely related, negative outcomes can arise. The offspring will all share very similar genes, which could make some diseases more dangerous as all individuals would have the same weaknesses. The reduced gene pool also means that they are more vulnerable as they have less chance of being able to adapt to changes in the environment such as climate change. There's also an increased risk of genetic disease caused by recessive genes. 
Being genetically very similar, if both parents carry the recessive gene for a genetic disease, like cystic fibrosis, then the offspring will all inherit this disease. The white tiger is a good example of severe mutations building up due to the inbreeding of individuals that are too closely related. We have been selectively breeding for thousands of years, getting closer to our desired goal with each generation of offspring. Nowadays, we have come up with a faster way to do it, genetic engineering. We can transplant the gene for a desired characteristic straight into an organism. We will look at genetic engineering in more detail in another video. So there you have selective breeding. We have been doing it since the origins of agriculture and aren't looking to stop anytime soon. We do, however, need to bear in mind the potentially negative outcomes, such as a loss of genetic variety, potentially making the species vulnerable to other diseases. And that's the crux of it. Genetic manipulation happens, right, um, every day by itself, right, from influencing from the climate and your food. Your environment plays a big role, making you susceptible to other things. So for those of you out there that, you know, um, are spending a fortune, you know, I, I know there's a group of people looking into, you know, things that are being peddled online, you know, snake oil. I want you to understand the first and best medicine is prayer. I know I'm going to keep saying it, prayer, 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 prayer. And other than that, it's just being aware of your situation. You can't change the water that comes out of your tap when you wash yourself right now. You're not. I mean, you can, you can collect rainwater and create a new system if you can afford to do that and try to hide it so the government doesn't tell you you're not allowed to. But then don't forget that in the rain, you also have the same chemicals that they're aerosolizing. It's in your soil, it's in your food. So what you do is try to ensure that you're aware. You cannot change. You have to find peace with things you can change and what you can't. We can do the best with dry fasting, wet fasting, right? But the situation has gone to that point. That is what I'm showcasing you. Because what they're going to attempt to deploy will terrify you because they know fear runs. Your wallets, I mean, and then all they have to do is have the right people thump it. I mean, you saw it even with the vaccine. They had superstars and cartoons and free donuts. And you know what? Actually, I wanted to say something. I saw something. Uh, let me see if I can find it so that I can share it. Give me a second because this just dawned on me. Uh, I, a while back, I had done an episode with um, uh, Walmart and Walgreens being sued for trying to give gift cards to people to take certain medications. And I was wondering if that would apply for COVID, right? But there were no actual instances where I could see that. Um, where it was direct or coaxing. And now with, you know, all these crypto attacks, the FEC has started regulating, uh, you know, how people advertise securities and interests and whatnot. But if you remember that case was out of Chicago, where someone sued and said they were, you know, um, bribing people to get certain medications, right? Well, this came across to me. I don't remember who sent it to me, but I saved it and I'm going to show it to you because I think one of the best class action suits we can have, and I'm seeking to see who I can court with on this, is to nip it in the bud, obviously, for the best offenses. 
but also it is to be aware that there are already cases that have adjudicated that things like advertising to sway customers with your insurance or your company is illegal. Now, why do I say this? Walgreens, Rite Aid, and all of them have contracts with insurance companies. Therefore, there is a direct correlation with them in regards to this. And as you can see on my screen, Walgreens has an advertisement saying, get vaccinated and earn rewards. You will earn $5 in Walgreens cash if you get COVID-19, shingles, pneumonia, whooping cough, and more. Remember, your insurance companies are also regulated by the NIH and the CDC, which then exchange information on which cohort of shingles, pneumonia, whooping cough, COVID-19 you get. And they get rewarded with that with federal tax deductions. It's all outlined in Obamacare. And this is why this was litigated before. For those that are actually freedom fighters and do understand that case in litigation, this is key. We can just rehash that again. That's all. Now, on that note, I wanted to uh, wish everyone a fantastic weekend. Um, next week, I will have part two, uh, part two of Brennan coming out on Monday. I will be traveling and being. Uh, I'm going to be at Lindell's event. Uh, don't forget to sign up for the event. Uh, use code Tori. Um, I am excited to go see the information that will be presented and to meet with people that are at the forefront of uh, election integrity. But um, I want everyone to understand and find peace in things that they can't control. And don't fall for things that, you know, be aware that when you're getting certain medications and or vitamins, and for those of you that have vitamin deficiency, I'm going to tell you, I'll, I'll tell you, as someone who's malnutrition, I have malnutrition right? Because of the injuries I sustain, I don't have the actual tangible parts of my organs to um, absorb specific vitamins. And so um, I'm very well aware of this and I have tested everything, the sublingual, the pills. I can't even break down some pills, right? Because I don't have the uh, portions of the organs that would uh, absorb that. This is what happens when you're injured. You lose certain capabilities, the best way to do it is with IV therapy. So for those of you that can afford it, because it is very expensive, right? You know, I would strongly um, have you consider to go there and go to one that actually does uh, ask you for blood panels or about your medical history. So I just wanted you guys to, to understand that, you know, maybe for those of you that don't have severe deficiencies, maybe you might go once a month and get like a, you know, a, a drip. And those of you that are nurses, you all know what the banana bag is. That's kind of to help people when they have hangovers just to replenish the things they need. Well, there are, you know, uh, pop-up places that do this where they have concoctions of, you know, vitamins that you need. Um, and for those of you that can afford it, great. I know that I feel fantastic when I get one of those. Um, but they are extremely expensive. Hopefully in the near future, those will become more mainstream and not become as, um, as hard to access. Uh, you know, some of those treatments range from $100 to $300 a session, um, depending on where you go. Some of them have um, IV therapy, like clubs, like kind of like the, what is it, the massage envy where you pay monthly and you get one massage a week or one massage a month. I don't know what it is. But 
there are um, wellness centers that have monthly subscriptions that allow you to get like basic bags. And if you can afford, you can put more. Um, you know, getting a good panel, all of you go to your doctors, I know that, but you know, you do, you can actually pay for your own blood work without your doctor. Um, you know, Quest that did a lot of the COVID testing, et cetera, et cetera, and data collection, uh, which is something that you might not care for. Um, you can actually Jane Doe yourself. Um, obviously, they'll have your uh, credit card information. And at this point, everyone's already on the system if you've been to the doctor in the past seven years. So your DNA is already there. But and and obviously um, <laughs> harboring and and protecting your uh, data is extremely important. But if you're curious, you know you can just go on Quest and and get yourself whatever blood work you want and pay for it yourself. Their 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 most expensive test I think is like four hundred bucks, and that's a crazy test. So um, you can actually go there and get tested, and you know that's it. It's a straightforward charge. I know that when I needed to get some blood work done, and my doctor was, you know, on vacay, all I did was go online and pay for the test myself, and it was seventy bucks, and I got the blood work I needed. So, um, you know, there are um, a few things that we can do, which is preventative and understanding that we're not going to change things that have already been set in stone in our genetics. So. Um, it's, it's really important that we pray because that's your best medicine. I kid you not. This is where miracles derive from. And, and you are the architect. So highly focus on the things you can control and, and be positive about it because, you know, even though, uh, good things and advancements in society in general, right? Making our lives easy, like vehicles, you know, or airplanes. It's important to understand that the, all of those things can be weaponized. You think the Wright brothers, when they created planes, they thought that they would take them and then add bombs to them to go bomb people? Absolutely not. You think that the guy that invented the drone because he wanted to take aerial photography or go see the Grand Canyon, that it was going to be used to remotely kill civilians? Absolutely not. But everything comes as a double-edged sword. Intentions, good intentions pave the way to hell, always. So we have to understand that. And what we need to focus on is the good that can come out of a lot of things. On that note, please enjoy this badass mashup. God bless, and I'll see you guys next week.